Gresham College presents The Right Stuff, Information, Privacy and the Ethics of Disclosure by Professor Gwen Adshead. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you so much for coming in um, this evening on uh, what is a revolting evening. Um, and so it's good to see people here. Um, my name is Professor Gwen Adshead and I'm a forensic psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. And this is uh, the third um, of my set of Gresham lectures. And this this set of lectures is about the rights, what I've called the right stuff, about what it takes to make moral choices in medicine. And the, my last lecture I was talking about, in a sort of general way, what moral choices in healthcare might look like, and I was trying to say something about the importance of emotion. But in this particular lecture, I really want to focus on information and knowledge. Um, and how we think about those things in, in, medical con in the medical context. So what I'm wanting to think about is the duty of confidentiality, which some will be familiar to some of you, but not to, to others. And there's something about the, its history and its scope. I'm going to talk about the limits to confidentiality and the, indeed the idea of secrecy. I want to talk a bit about personal information as a personal possession, um, and I want to talk about what happens when we want to share information because we're concerned about the risk of harm to others if we don't. And I want to raise issues, questions about duties to disclose, um, which including possibly uh, whistleblowing. Um, and again, I'd like to acknowledge the uh, help and support of several uh, collaborators and co-thinkers, uh, people who have asked me lots of difficult questions while I was putting these things together. So if we start with Hippocrates, uh, Hippocrates, um, as, well, as is well known, one of the many writers of what is known as the Hippocratic Corpus, a bundle of very interesting documents about doctors and the practice of medicine and what was known um, about the practice of medicine. Um, but of course the Hippocratic Oath, in particular, has acquired a bit of a life of its own. And although nobody actually, I think, swears it anymore, or only very few medical institutions do, it does have still a big impact on how people think about their duties as doctors and has given rise to a much wider discussion about what it might mean to take an oath of any sort, uh, really, and what the ethical duties of doctors might be. So this is what the duty of confidentiality looks like in the original Hippocratic um, Oath. So, and it, these are venerable words, whatever in, co in connection with my professional service or not in my connection with it, I see or hear in the life of men which ought not to be spoken of abroad, I will not divulge as reckoning that all such should be kept secret. Now this is a really very interesting and compelling um, set of ideas that's hidden away within these brief sentences. There's something very interesting about what you might see or hear both in your professional service and out of it. So actually this particular text is not linking the duty of confidentiality to a professional role, but it does pick up on this idea of things that ought not to be spoken abroad, uh, which sadly literally does beg the question of what on earth the author is getting at here. But it does suggest that there's an idea of things that ought to be kept secret. Note the use of the word ought here. And there are things that ought not to be shared. But it does suggest that there are some things that ought to be shared abroad. Um, but it's not quite clear from the Hippocratic writings what those, what those are. 
and I will not divulge, reckoning that these should be kept secret. Um, and I, again, I think it's very one of the things that's complicated about the Hippocratic Oath, and particularly about this bit of it, is that it's really not clear what the context is or what is, what is meant here. Why on earth would secrecy be seen as a duty of doctors? Well, there are a number of reasons why this might be, which are, are, are socially, contextual, uh, historically. I mean, certainly at the time, uh, the, in these uh, classical times, in pre-classical times, the values of members of the household were possessions of the head of the household, and their values might be altered if they were ill in some way or damaged in some way. So it might be very important for the household to keep that information about that secret in terms of economic transactions. Um, and, and relatedly, of course, alliances via pregnancies and kinship structures via pregnancies and marriages uh, were very carefully controlled. Uh, women's sexuality in terms of pregnancy in particular um, might be disastrous for a family or a household if a woman was pregnant uh, rather unexpectedly when she should not have been. Um, so it may be that that was... And, of course, doctors would have been very much involved um, in, in the pregnancy and particularly the delivery. There is that about, um, about the practice of medicine and illness, which, of course, is linked with ideas of sacred mysteries, that illness itself and the, and, and the gods had an influence on how people became ill and what the responses to illness should be. And so there was something about the practice of medicine and medical care as having a sort of holy mystery context to it. Um, and that is an interesting idea, I think, because it, I think you still it is possibly where some of the deference and the special status of medical practitioners comes from. But also, uh, if you keep things secret, it does promote the disclosure of shameful things or things to do that are very intimate, very private, things that really wouldn't be social but might be shared with somebody who could help. And from, uh, from a purely therapeutic point of view, we, you know, we, one of the reasons that doctors you know, contemporaneously promote an idea of confidentiality is we know that it helps people open up and disclose very important personal things that may help doctors make, make accurate diagnoses and know um, how to treat people. Actually, doctors can't function very well without good quality information, and confidentiality is very important. Um, that duty or that promise of confidentiality is very important in getting people to, to open up about things that they might consider to be very shameful. And that, we shall see, comes back again in relation to issues of sexual matters. So the traditional basis for confidentiality is also that pe when people are seeking care, they are vulnerable. That when we ask for care, we are putting ourselves in a position of vulnerability and we need to be able to trust that the person we're speaking to is not going to exploit that vulnerability. We're going to share information that could put us in a sort of vulnerable position vis-a-vis position -vis the doctor, and we need that assurance that a doctor won't exploit that. And that's particularly true, of course, again, historically, in small communities, when the doctor was a very often a very important figure in a community and might indeed be privy to many secrets um, about, about people. 
And it could be argued, indeed, that again, one that because doctors were often located in, in small communities and didn't move for long periods, that actually there's a particular duty on doctors to keep things private and not gossip about other people, about information about other people, it's because the because gossip is completely ruinous in small communities. So that trust between doctors and patients is supported by an agreement of privacy and a containment of personal knowledge. So we can see that the duty of confidentiality is multifaceted sort of duty. It's a process, a transaction between people, which is literally with faith. And that faith is about trust and about entrusting something very delicate often to, um, to a doctor. In stark contrast to that idea of confidentiality and privacy as a delicate transaction with faith between two people is the idea of information control as a human right. So under Article 8 of the European Convention, there is a right to a private life, and that includes control over your personal information. And this came up in the case of Naomi Campbell. Uh, Naomi Campbell was seeking treatment from, um, I, think, for, I think, for a substance misuse problem, and photographs were taken of her leaving a clinic where she'd been having treatment. Uh, good for her. Um, and both pictures of her were taken, splashed all over the newspapers, and she sued the newspapers. Um, and she won. And it was agreed that there had been a breach of her Article 8 rights because there was that, because the, the public interest did not extend to an interest in her health care and her personal attempts in, in relation to trying to overcome addiction. And in a similar vein, our medical records are part of our private life, and each of us has a right to control that information. And the, the Data Protection Act gives us rights as individuals over our information and imposes very significant duties on any type of body that, look, that protects or holds data about us um, and imposes duties on, on those bodies to protect that information, to keep it safe, to not share it unless it's done reasonably and disproportionately and with proper consent. Um, so rights to information control have replaced, in a sense, a duty to keep things secret. Um, and, th and those duties to keep the, those rights to information control are, are controlled by the Data Protection Act, but also by a whole raft of policies about information governance and something called the Caldecott Guardian. Now, that's named after Dame Fiona Caldecott, who, um, who was president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, as it happens, but she's also been president of another un number of other bodies. And she, she carried out a very important pieces of work looking at the disclosure of information in public life and particularly in relation to healthcare and she's written widely about how to keep information safe and when to disclose it um, and there are in, in every trust and every, every healthcare service you will find that there's a court guardian whose duty it is to oversee any decisions to disclose information that aren't already covered by information governance principles. And every single healthcare employee of the NHS has to undergo annual information governance training, and I cannot tell you how dull that is. <laughs> so, but this is really what comes out of the training. Maybe I shouldn't be so rude about it because this is partly what I remember from my information governance training, but this is the key, one of the key issues is that personal information is treated 
as data that you, can, that you and I own. And because it's owned, we share it with the people that we, we give it to other people to look after for us. They collect it, they store it. It's a commodity that actually has financial implications in, term, in all sorts of situations. I mean, there's the financial aspect that trusts can get into. They get fined if they don't treat our information properly. But, of course, there are actual information value around many types of personal information about us, including some of our bodily samples, bodily fluids. For many years ago, there was a very significant legal case which involved a woman who owned, who was suffering from a very particular type of leukemia and whether she owned the actual leukemia cells that she had in her body, which were then taken away and used commercially to develop a line of treatment. And that is a very interesting story, which I believe is going to be made into a Hollywood film later this year. So the, but the issue here is that, say, rather than a transaction between two people, which is taken with faith, what we have much more in relation to medical information is the idea of you and I owning our information and there will be no disclosure of that information to anybody else without our explicit consent. But, of course, there are problems with such an approach, which sounds a bit rigid, um, and, it, and it has the potential to be because of many other social situations that arise where you want to share information. For a start, secrecy can be very harmful to communities. Um, and that's especially, and it can, of course, support the exploitation of the vulnerable, which is one of the reasons that we're increasingly interested in transparency, um, and particularly in relation to court processes around either the criminal law or the family courts. So we're, you know, there's a lot of interest in whether actually we, secrecy undermines community bonds um, in important ways. Secrecy is obviously harmful in relation to diseases that might be communicated. It's also harmful when it relates to diseases or injuries caused at work. Now, you can imagine an unscrupulous employer who would not want medical information about diseases acquired at work or injuries acquired at work to be shared with anybody else. Um, but many of the occupational health laws exist to make sure that such information can be shared. And, of course, the Health and Safety Executive has a very powerful role um, in controlling um, issues about uh, diseases or injuries acquired, uh, acquired at work. But this is just another example where the idea of secrecy might be actually very harmful. It's also not clear about what the scope of the duty might be. So we have a duty to keep everybody's information completely private and not share it with anyone without their consent. But what is the scope of that duty? Where, does the, where are the boundaries of the scope of that duty? How far does it extend and for how long? As you may know, there are real debates, for example, about how much confidentiality people might be expected to be able to claim after their death. And in fact, there's a vigorous dis discussion right, happening right now today in relation to Mr. Brady's uh, medical records. As you probably know, Mr. Brady, who was um, convicted of serious acts of terrible violence 40 years ago, uh, died in a secure psychiatric hospital um, after long illness. Um, and there is considerable media interest in his medical records, a lot of debate about whether he will have any confidentiality of any sort after his death. Can you offer privacy without secrecy? Where are the boundaries between privacy and secrecy? 
And at what point, for both of these things, do, if you were going to offer privacy instead of secrecy, you're going to come up again against what the limits will be. Or you could turn it around the other way and you could say, well, instead of having a duty of privacy or a duty to keep things private or secret, what about imposing a duty on people to disclose if and only if the harm to others could be averted? So that way you get an idea that they're basically our, our information will be kept safe, but if there's a concern about harm to others, there might be a duty to disclose. And that's really what I'm going to be talking about next, because that's exactly what the courts have really focused on. The courts have really applied themselves over the last 30 years to thinking about those situations where doctors might have a duty to disclose information because the, that, that disclosure might go some way to preventing harm to others. So the history of this really starts in the 19th century, uh, again with the, the introduction of public health laws. And it's a very important move in the 19th century from understanding medicine and healthcare as being essentially a sort of, again, a, a sort of dialogue between two people which is entirely private between those two people, and health being much more of a social issue, a social concept, the introduction of ideas about public health, the ideas that actually we affect one another. One person who has a disease may affect many other people, so that it actually doesn't make any sense to see people simply as, as isolated. So, for example, the first public health laws were about limiting the movement of people who might have communicable diseases. And similarly, introducing the ideas of occupational health and health and safety at work. And the role of doctors in public health has caused enormous debate because it feel, felt uncomfortable to move away from an idea of keeping of a secret transaction, rather like priests and confessants, and into something which was much more social in its nature, health as a social good. And where health is a social good and medicine the practice of a social good, justice is likely to be involved. So this story really acquires a, a particular uh, momentum in the 1980s with, the, uh, with the, the concerns about AIDS and the discovery of the HIV virus. And I don't know how many people here remember this time, but it was a very frightening time in many ways. Lots of anxiety, lots of high emotions, lots of real concerns that people might acquire a fatal disease without any warning. Lots of ill-informed and very sort of negative, lot of ill-informed speculation. Lots of very emotional attacks on groups of people who are thought to be possible carriers of disease. It was a very difficult time. But one of the profound ethical issues that it raised was what a doctor should do if he has a patient who he knows is HIV positive, discovers they're HIV positive and possibly having active AIDS, much less common now, of course, than it used to be. But if that person has sexual partners and refuses to let the doctor tell their sexual partners that they're at risk, bearing in mind, particularly at that time in the, in the 1980s, it did seem as though the transmission of the HIV virus did bring about very severe, very significant and serious illness really quite quickly, which often resulted in death, um, which isn't say, it's not so much the case anymore. So this was the dilemma that the General Medical Council faced, and it issued this guidance. 
it said that if a person who's HIV positive or who has active AIDS refuses to disclose this to named and identified sexual partners who might be at risk, then a doctor may disclose this to those partners in the face of a flat refusal from the patient. So that's a very significant departure from the general idea about confidentiality. And it's actually, of course, a significant move away from privacy and secrecy. It's saying that the protection of others is a, tr is a type of moral trump in relation to the duty to keep things confidential. And that breach is justified by the prevention of serious harm, but also, the and that duty to prevent harm trumps general professional duties to individuals. So two slightly different aspects of the same thing. So that shifted the ethical framework in medicine very significantly towards a, a utilitarian framework, even more than it had before. As I was trying to describe in my previous lecture, the utilitarian framework as a moral philosophy is very strong in medicine because, as you probably know, the utilitarian framework aims in a general way that the good thing to do is to bring about as much good for as many people as possible. Now, it's, it's not quite as crude as that. There are nuances and contexts, and, and it's more complicated than I've made it sound. But nevertheless, medicine seemed to sit very comfortably within a utilitarian paradigm because... Um, it, it doesn't make any sense in medicine that you would act so as to bring about a bad outcome. There is that in medicine in which you want to bring about good outcomes for the people that you're looking after, and ideally as many people as possible. And you want to, you want to take active steps to avoid doing harm. Um, and as I tried to explain in my last lecture, that utilitarian perspective is neatly in complementarity based uh, balanced by an attention to duties, like a duty to confidentiality, like a duty to tell the truth, like a duty to respect justice. But this duty of beneficence, which implies a duty to do that, which brings about best outcomes and reduce harm, but the difficulty is that what about if attention to those duties means breaching others? And this is what I tried to discuss that in my last lecture, which is that you could say, well, a doctor must do that which brings about the best outcomes for his patient. But what about if that brings about harms to others? And then there's a question about how you weigh up potential harms and benefits. You have to decide which harms and benefits will matter. And actually, there's an even bigger question about who is going to be doing that analysis anyway. Should it be the doctor who's treating the patient in front of them? Or should it be some third party or third parties who are a bit more independent, who can take a broader view? Should there be time, some type of scrutiny in which different voices and different values of different parties can be adequately represented? And there'd be a proper process of, explore, of exploration. And we talked last time about what happens if you intend something good and actually bring about bad outcomes. And especially this question about justice. What, surely we want our doctors to be acting justly as well as doing everything they can to bring about good outcomes. And arguably one of the, of the many concerns about the recent case of Mr Ian Patterson is a, is a concern that he was not acting justly towards the people that he treated because he failed to get proper consent from them and he failed to tell them what he was doing. Now, in 
this notion of breaching somebody's confidentiality in order to benefit other people, we are setting up a paradigm which is a little bit similar to the dilemma that Judith Jarvis Thompson describes in her famous essay, A Defense of Abortion. And in that essay, she argues that requiring women to go to term with a pregnancy that they don't want, and particularly those who had forced upon them, is like asking them to be good Samaritans. And that we can't expect people to be good Samaritans. We can't demand that a group of people are good Samaritans. But we might be able to demand that they're minimally helpful. So there might be circumstances where we would encourage women to carry a pregnancy to term, even though it's not something she really wanted to do. But if she had a pregnancy forced upon her, we couldn't make her do that. We couldn't make her do that. But if the point being here, moving away from abortion and thinking now in relation to confidentiality, if your refusal to help somebody by disclosing information costs you very little, but actually costs other people a great deal, then that's not a morally reasonable position, says Judith Jarvis Thompson. It's morally unsustainable in the long term. And I think, as I say, there is a bit of a a parallel here with the issue about information sharing. If you think of yourself in that situation, you're, you're someone who's HIV positive with active AIDS and you don't want any of your sexual partners to know, even though they're at active risk from, from catching it from you, to share that information costs you less than it costs them not to know. And that's probably not a sustainable position. And that's pretty much, I think, where the GMC were coming from. Now, here is a case which is very well known in mental health. You may not have come across it, but in the field of psychiatry, and particularly in mental health law, it is colloquially known as the case that launched a thousand writs. Um, And this is the case of Miss Tarasov and Mr. Podar, a very, very sad story which still reverberates, I think, down into the the practice of mental health to this day. They were students in Berkeley. They had a very brief relationship, although it may have been more in Mr. Podar's mind, I think, than Ms. Tarasov's. Anyway, Ms. Tarasov broke it off after a fairly short time. She felt that Mr. Podar was getting too, too heavy, too close, and she, she wasn't up for that type of very, um, very sort of intense emotional relationship that Mr. Podar wanted. Mr. Podar became very depressed, and he started to stalk Ms. Tarasov, unbeknownst to her. And he went and saw a campus, a university counsellor for therapy. And he told the campus counsellor that he was thinking of killing Miss Tarasov if he couldn't have her. And he then dropped out of therapy. He, he, he then dropped out of therapy. He told the campus counsellor at the end of the summer term, and he then vanished for the summer. Um, and he didn't come back in the, in the autumn term. And the counsellor was very alarmed and she went to the campus police in the States. These campuses are so vast, they have their own police forces. Um, and the campus police um, went to speak to Mr. Potter about his intention to harm Mr. Pa- Ms. Tarasov, and not terribly surprisingly, he denied any intention to harm Ms. Tarasov. And three weeks later, he went to her house and shot her. Um, and he was tried for murder, He was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and he spent a bit of time in a California hospital, um, and then after a few years he was deported back to his native India, 
And I think that is what is known about him is he lived a rather blameless existence thereafter. But Ms. Tarasov's family sued the university and they argued that the university had a duty of care to Ms. Tarasov and they had failed in that duty of care by not telling her about Mr. Podar's intentions and that by failing to tell her, they had also failed to protect her um, and that the, and, and the university had, position was that their counsellor had a duty of confidentiality to Mr. Podar and, that no, and also no duty to Ms. Tarasov because she was not a patient. So the campus counsellor had duties to Mr. Podar, but no duties to Ms. Tarasov. Um, and, in, and to have spoken to Ms. Tarasov about Mr. Podar's mental state would have breached her duty of confidentiality. The California Supreme Court heard this case twice. It's unheard of in, in medical legal history um, in the United States. This case was so important because so much evidence was taken from doctors, from psychiatrists, from psychotherapists. Everybody involved in counselling and therapy pointed out that to say there was a duty to breach confidentiality would fundamentally change the nature of the work that's done in therapy and the nature of the work that's done in mental health. And nevertheless, the California Supreme Court said that the duty to keep confidences was not absolute. They didn't accept that the whole of, of mental health and psychotherapy would, be, would collapse um, if this duty were imposed. And they argued that the university did have a duty to warn Ms. Tarasov and did have a duty to protect her, and they had failed in that duty, and therefore the Tarasovs won significant damages from the University of Berkeley. So Tarasov founded a new duty for healthcare professionals, um, and effectively abolished secrecy as a basis for confidentiality. Now, this, is a, this was American law, and, you, and the point about the Thousand Writs was that following the Tarasov case, there were indeed hundreds of cases about what the scope of the duty to warn and the scope of the duty to protect entailed. But the key issues are about identifiable victims and the foreseeability of the risk. So that in relation to Ms. Tarasov, it was argued that the campus counsellor had an identifiable victim. It wasn't that Mr. Pollard was going to go, go and just going to kill women that he knew. He had an identifiable victim that you could reasonably make contact with. Plus, there, it was reasonably foreseeable that he would probably act on that. He was depressed. He was saying that he couldn't live without her. He was stalking her. There were a lot of signs there that, that suggested that violence risk, although violence risk is very hard to predict, um, um, but there are some factors that establish what the, what the courts call a sort of chain of causation, a type of foreseeability. But the other thing about this Tarasov case is that it did generate absolutely huge amounts of research into mental disorder and violence, which has been very good for psychiatry um, because it has established once and for all that mental illness is not a risk factor for violence, generally speaking, but substance misuse is. But the identifiability of the person at risk creates a duty, and that is really where, the, as the court said, protective privilege ends where public peril begins. And there was a similar case in, um, or sort of similar case, that happened in the, in the United Kingdom in 1990. Tarasov is not law um, in this country, but there have been some cases that have pointed in the same direction, and I'm going to run through them briefly. 
One is the case of Mr W, who was a patient in a secure hospital. He wanted to be released at a tribunal hearing. These tribunal ha hearings happen quite regularly and patients can be released. And his lawyers instructed Dr Egdall to provide a report about W's risk. W told Dr Egdall that he was still very interested in explosives. And Dr Egdall formed the view that W still posed a risk of harm to other people. And the lawyers thanked Dr Egdall for his report and decided not to use it at the hearing. Um, which is their prerogative, it's not. And Dr. Egdor sent his report to W's doctors, um, and the report eventually found its way to the Home Office, who ultimately control uh, the movements of patients in secure psychiatric hospitals, and W sued Dr. Egdor for breach of confidentiality. And the court found that there had been a breach of confidentiality. Dr. Egdor had not done the right thing, or at least you know, he had breached W's confidentiality, but the breach was justified with respect to risk reduction. And the court commented that there might be a duty on doctors to breach confidentiality in, in similar circumstances. So that is a new dimension, not just, as it were, allowing the breach to take place, but actually arguing that there might be a duty to breach in certain circumstances. A few years later, again, a very, another very sad case. Uh, Rosie Palmer was killed by a patient who was released from a psychiatric hospital. While in the psychiatric hospital, he had talked about having thoughts of harming children, but he hadn't made any specific plans. He hadn't said who. He just talked about some of the horrible thoughts he had in his head, included thoughts of harming children. Um, and sadly, several weeks, possibly several months, I think, after he was released, he did, in fact, kill Rosie Palmer. Um, and her family argued that the health authority had a duty to protect Rosie, but the court found that there couldn't be a duty to unidentifiable people. If the patient had said, I'm going to attack Rosie Palmer of 43 Acacia Avenue, that would have formed a duty of care. That would have been the basis of a duty of care. But to, pose, to put that duty on health services towards unidentifiable people would put an unreasonable burden on health services. But the, so the, the debate about the scope of the duty of confidentiality continues. So the NHS Code of Confidentiality imposes a duty on NHS staff to disclose medical information in the prevention, detection and punishment of serious crime. So you might like to think about that next time you go to hospital. If you're planning on a serious, carrying out a serious crime and you talk about it with the staff there, they have a duty to disclose that, which is interesting. There are quite separate duties in relation to child protection, but they're clearly set out. If you have any concerns about a risk to a child, healthcare professionals are expected to act, and I believe that there is some active debate about making that mandatory now. Uh, lots of Department of Health guidance, local authority safeguarding procedures, GMC guidance. Every patient in mental health services gets a risk assessment of their risk to other people, despite the fact that risk to others is pretty small. And risk to others is one criteria for detention under the Mental Health Act. So you can see that the risk to others has become a type of good, within, particularly within mental health, that has to be factored in when you're thinking about weighing up harms and benefits. So this is based on a true story. Mr Jenkins killed his wife when he was mentally ill. He was sent to a secure hospital for treatment instead of being sent to prison because he was mentally ill at the time. He spent 20 years in a psychiatric hospital. He was well enough to be transferred out to a less secure environment, which is what usually happens, nothing odd about this. And he wanted to go back to his home area because he still had some supportive friends there. However, um, his adult children, um, who really didn't like him, perhaps for understandable, very human reasons, 
um, threatened to kill him if he was returned to the, the local area. They threatened to go to the police, threatened to go to the MP. Um, and so Mr Jenkins didn't go back to his local area and another area many miles away was found to take him. But, and that was that, that move was justified on the grounds of the feelings of the victims and the victims' families, of Mr. Mr. Jenkins's children. But it seemed to me that there's an issue here about why Mr. Jenkins has no claim to confidentiality, why did the, his adult children know all about the plans? What about his claim to justice, to being treated fairly like any other person who's spent 20 years in hospital and who's made progress and is not thought to be a risk? Why do his family members get to decide about his care? Uh, yes, they've, been, they've suffered as a result of his actions, but does that mean that they get to decide about what happens to him forever in the future? What about risk? They, his family argued that they believed that he was a risk to them. Now, the professionals didn't consider him to be a risk to anybody, but risk assessment is not, not about imagining what might happen but about trying to weigh up chance and probabilities. And it's very hard to do in relation to violence because violence is a low base rate event. Despite what you may read in the newspapers, violence is actually a very uncommon um, action in general social life. Um, and general, so it's quite hard to predict events that have a, a very low frequency. But um, there's a man called Peter Sandman who advises on environmental risk and he has a nice definition of risk as meaning hazard times outrage. And I think there is something here about the outrage of the idea of Mr. Jenkins moving on, which clearly generated a type of, of real hostility towards him. But it looks as though we do have different approaches to confidentiality for different groups of people in a way that I think may be frankly unjust. If you're an ordinary person like you and me, with a medic with, and you've got a medical disorder, no one can disclose that information about, about your condition without your express consent. And that includes people with criminal records. But if you are a patient with a mental disorder, and if you've been violent in the past, then information about you can be shared without your consent and without your knowledge, and in the face of a flat refusal. <coughs> At the same time, fatal child abuse inquiries make it clear that there are still professionals who are rather reluctant to share their concerns about adults who might pose a risk to children because of concerns about confidentiality, even though there is a significant amount of professional guidance suggests that if you have any concerns that an adult might pose a risk to a child, you should raise those concerns. So we seem to be having different approaches to confidentiality with different groups of people. And my contention is that people with mental disorders who have a history of acting violently seem to have a rather, they seem to have a lack of access to claims to confidentiality compared with other people. So maybe this is a version of the trolley problem. I discussed the trolley problem um, in my last lecture. And this is, the, this is the moral question about is it morally justifiable to do harm in order to do good. And in this particular co context, in relation to confidentiality, is, is, it all, is it morally justifiable to breach somebody's privacy and claims on confidentiality in order to reduce the risk of harm to others? 
And sometimes it won't even be that you'll be saving a number of people. Uh, it might just be one person um, feels better because they've got the information. So, for example, there was a tribunal case, again, involving a man who was be to be released from a mental hospital, and the judge decided that his victim should know where he was living and the, and the scope of where he was living because it would make her feel better. And, the, and from one perspective, you can see exactly why that might be. On another level, that's a significant breach of somebody's confidentiality in order to make another person feel better. And you and I might feel a bit of concern about that. And indeed, one of the big concerns, I think, currently in all healthcare is where disclosure of information may take place in order to make professionals and their employers feel safe, that the people who really want information disclosed are, uh, are doctors who are concerned about, about keeping uh, information private um, and if something goes wrong, and employers similarly. And this, I make no apologies for showing the slide again, but this is just a reminder that two that there seems to be a bit of a relationship between a sort of crude utilitarianism, you must bring about as much benefit as possible, um, and scores on a psychopathy checklist. Um, and I say that only because the standard of moral reasoning when it comes to, shall we disclose information about this person? Oh, yes, we must, because if anything goes wrong, then it'll look bad on us, so we better do that, is not, I submit, a well-reasoned, moral argument and not a moral debate and certainly not one that any self-respecting utilitarian would recognise. You have to establish that there is harm caused by the breach because many times if you breach confidentiality there is significant harm that follows to the person. So for example in relation to Mr Jenkins he suffered significant harm as a result of his family being told about his move to the community. Um, People lose their liberties because of disclosure about personal information about them. There are restrictions on liberty and choice. So in the case of T, a man didn't get to live where, again, didn't live where he, wanted, where he wanted to. There are people who are vulnerable to coercion in prisons and in secure psychiatric hospitals. They're already vulnerable to coercion. They may be subject to even more coercion and less protection because they make other people feel anxious. And although that's very human and understandable, we have to ask ourselves whether that's just and whether it's fair. And we have to ask ourselves that if it was us who was detained in prison for having done something horrible, whether we would want to be treated in this way. Sometimes information is disclosed just because other people feel anxious and not because there's a demonstrated risk. So, for example, in the world I work in, this is a very common problem. I'm working as a therapist with a patient who has anger issues very common issue, could happen in prison. In the therapy session, he tells you he's furious with one of the member of staff because she spoke to him rudely, in his view. He's not necessarily telling the truth. She might not have spoken to him rudely. And he said, I feel like killing that woman. Now, what you should do as a therapist is a bit unclear. Because if you tell the nurse in question, then the patient will almost certainly lose his leave and his privileges and he will be seen as being a very high-risk person. He's making threats. Um, and that will probably mean that he spends much longer in secure care. On the other hand, the nurse might say, he's threatening to kill me. You can't keep that information from me. 
that's a material threat to my life. I now feel, I feel anxious, I feel distressed. You must, you must tell everybody you can in order to manage the risk. So real debates about what you say and to whom. And there is a, some very interesting case law about situations like this. So, but what it raises, for, I think, are some other questions about the different types of conversation we have in healthcare. So, for example, is what a man says in therapy a personal object that he owns, that he, as it were, entrusts for the time that you're together but actually belongs to him? The knowledge that we get of each other in long-term relationships is essential to intimacy and trust and attachment. It's not a separate part of those attachments. In fact, the information, the knowledge we have of each other is, is part of those attachments. And there are, so there are, I think there are real dilemmas about treating personal information as a private commodity that people own, a bit like a sort of gemstone that they hoard to themselves. And that's especially true when people are elderly or dependent on others, young and still dependent on others, end-of-life care, where people are very dependent on others for to have a good ending. These are all situations where the relationships of people close to you are absolutely crucial, and the information that what you say to each other is about communication about a relationship and not information. So, for example, if an elderly woman says to her daughter, when I get sick, I want to go to Switzerland and end my life, that is not just a piece of personal information. That's not a bit of data. That's a communication about their relationship, which is very important to their relationship. So how can we think about these challenges? Well, we could perhaps try and move the emphasis away from treating information as a, from a, in a sort of market commodity approach to a more relational approach. And we need to ask people much earlier in care who's important to them and their identity and who they want to be involved in their care and how they want information shared. And we need to teach healthcare staff much more about, the good, about good communication and about information sharing as part of care and understanding that it's not as simple as I can't tell you anything because it's confidential, which is maddening to friends and relatives and people who ring up, but it's a sort of fail-safe type of response. We need to put healthcare back as a type of conversation, not just as a transaction. And I want to end with a very contemporary issue, which is about what information you share in relation to genetic conditions. So there are genetic conditions in which if one family member has it, other family members are very likely to have it also. And so if one person is diagnosed, it means that there are other people who there's, there's information about other people that might be germane to their health that they do not know, and you, the patient, or you, the doctor, do know this. So doctors now have very important information that may affect other people, patients, children, and relatives. Who should tell who what? And again, especially who gets to decide? Especially when that disclosure may lead to... is, is bad news that may cause real distress. Real distress, unavoidable distress. So um, a group of colleagues in Southampton have been doing some very interesting work about this. Um, they've been particularly interested um, in the types of dilemma that involve transmission of genetic material between families. Um, and when you ask groups of people who are affected by these conditions what they say, the patients say, well, this doesn't feel like it's my information to be kept to myself. It ought to be shared with other people. 
Whereas the doctors looking after them often say, oh, well, don't think it's for us to tell anybody. Don't think we should be telling anybody else. It might upset family dynamics. It might cause distress. And if a patient doesn't want to tell his family about this condition, even though it involves other people, then I, I can't make him do that. It's not right for professionals to try and encourage people to behave well towards other people. It's a very interesting stance. Um, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting stance. So these, this is the research that these colleagues have been doing, and they have been particularly interested in this case. And this case is, is a live case. Mr. A killed his wife when he was mentally ill, and he went to a secure psychiatric hospital. It's clear he was mentally ill at the time of the homicide. Um, and it, he, ha he was having family therapy with his daughter to discuss the offence um, and the impact on their family. It's clearly Miss C, his daughter, a rather loving person, someone who is quite brave, willing to sit down with her dad in family therapy to discuss, you know, to discuss what had happened and the impact on her family, on the family as a whole. During his stay in hospital, Mr. A was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. And for those of you who don't know, Huntington's disease is a type of dementing illness which typically appears when people are in their 40s. And there isn't any cure, and it brings about a type of dementia um, which is pretty horrible, really. Um, and, but Huntington's disease, if you, the off, it's a dominant gene. So the offspring um, have a 50... Miss C had a 50-50 chance of having the, the gene herself. Um, and any offspring of hers would also be affected. Now, Miss C fell pregnant, but Mr A refused to let his diagnosis be disclosed to her. Um, his doctors said, you must, I think you should tell your daughter that you have Huntington's disease because it's material to her status and it might be material to her, her, any offspring she has. And Mr A said, no, I don't want to tell her because she might have an abortion. So the doctors did not tell Missy, and Missy had a baby daughter. And then Missy accidentally found out that her father had Huntington's disease, um, and she found out the hospital had known for some time and she sued in negligence, saying that the hospital had failed in its duty of care to her, that they had the same duty of care to her that they had to her father, and that in, fulfill, in failing to breach her father's confidentiality, that had failed in, her, in their duty to protect her, and indeed her unborn child. The court found that there was no case to answer, because the hospital didn't have a duty to her, that she was not the patient, Mr A was the patient, and therefore the hospital didn't have a duty towards her. But I think we might think in a case like that, that that information about Huntington's disease didn't really belong to Mr. A, like a thing that he could own or trade. But he might have needed help to communicate about something very frightening and distressing. And that perhaps Missy you know, did lose out in terms of justice, and that justice might be more important than welfare in the long term. And when I put these slides together, the case was going to the Court of Appeal, and last night the Court of Appeal decided in Miss C's favour. So she uh, has won her case to go back and, take and sue the hospital for negligence in their failure to care for her. So on that note, I'm going to finish, and perhaps we've got time for a few more questions, for a few questions.
For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.